Okay. So we, uh, we initiated this work with the recognition that while the quality and effectiveness of the child health services that we provide are obviously of paramount importance in achieving our goals, they are necessary but not sufficient. And that is there are a multitude of factors that influence the outcomes for children that we seek and that we must be mindful of the roles of social and environmental factors, genetics, and behavior. So our response to this mandate is to be especially mindful of the importance of engaging multiple sectors in this work. And this is our ubiquitous flower diagram that we show everywhere, every chance possible, that's meant to capture the many sectors in which we work with whom we engage in order to achieve our goal of promoting children's optimal healthy development. I'm not going to go through the list with you. Child health and child health services obviously are there as some of the usual suspects, early care and education, family support. But in addition, there are a variety of other sectors that are critical, healthy homes, safe neighborhoods, food and nutrition, transportation, etc. You'll also note that several sectors, several petals are blank. And that's because we realize that we are not smart enough to be able to identify all the sectors that we must engage in order to be successful in this work. The way in which we've operationalized our work is to support a host of community-oriented programs, some of whom have existed for many years, Injury Prevention Center, 25 years plus. Others are new and have been cultivated under the work of the office. What you'll notice about these programs is that they address a wide range, a wide range of issues and uh, go about their activities in a wide range of fashion. Our job within the office is really to do three things. Number one, to try to ensure that these programs are as effective as they possibly can be. And we do this through a variety of strategies, technical assistance, and metrics. Number two, to promote collaboration and synergy across and among the programs. And we have some striking examples of programs that previously were operating independent of each other, now working closely together. And third, and perhaps most excitedly, encouraging new innovations in response to critical contemporary issues. So if any of you have any thoughts as to ideas that might enable us to successfully address critical contemporary issues, we want to hear from you. We have the vehicle mechanism in place to cultivate those thoughts, potentially pilot test those thoughts, and even bring successful pilot tests to the stage of sustainable programs. So this morning, we are going to return to our roots in child health services, one petal in our multi-petaled, multi-sector flower diagram. And look at the extent to which innovation can, in fact, enhance our capacity to deliver child health services to promote the best outcomes for children. And I would suggest to you that the commonality between, among, e-consult, CLASP, and co-management is the extent to which these innovations expand the capacity of the medical home and the primary care provider enable easy access to subspecialists and preserve the capacity of subspecialists to deliver services to those children and families that need them the most. 
This is absolutely consistent with the elusive uh, so-called triple aim. We're improving the quality of care, we're improving outcomes, and we are saving money. So in that context, I'm pleased to briefly introduce our two speakers. As Juan mentioned, Dr. Darren Anderson is with us. Uh, Darren is the uh, director of the Weitzman Institute, a research and innovation center and is Vice President and Chief Quality Officer for Community Health Center, Inc., the uh, operator of our primary care center. Uh, Darren has risen over many years up through the ranks at CHC uh, from being a primary care provider, an internist taking care of a, of a large uh, Hispanic population to that of Chief Medical Officer, now Chief Quality Officer. He uh, also has directed primary care services for the Connecticut VA and uh, has been actively engaged in a variety of quality improvement initiatives at the state level. Uh, Darren's education and training have been at Harvard, at Columbia, and at Yale, and he has a CV that is replete with publications, presentations, and grants. And the fact that he is an internist, we do not hold that against him. He has been really a strong collaborator with us in pediatrics. Uh, Dr. Karen Rubin needs no introduction for this group. Karen is our longstanding professor of pediatrics, former head of the division of endocrinology, and is uh, the associate chair for clinical affairs in the Department of Pediatrics, and also heads our clinical innovation initiative. As you can see, she is well positioned to lead initiatives such as CLASP and co-management, and uh, this is uh, such a a prominent and important component of the work that we are doing through our office. So with that, Darren, please. And I can even advance to go back to the start. No, just the first where you just were. Is that where you are? Yeah, that's fine. All right, thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, as, I, as I walked in today, um, I, the question lodged in my mind, how did a primary care internist end up giving grand rounds at uh, pediatric uh, children's hospital in Connecticut and hopefully by the end of this talk that the answer to that question will be clear to you uh, because while we have taken care of a slightly different segment of the population uh, I would uh, pose to you that the problems in the healthcare system that we face uh, are very very similar uh, and uh, that uh, the work that I've been doing uh, on e-consults will uh, hopefully speak to you as well, and much of what I'm going to present uh, in this combination of storytelling, uh, academic presentation, uh, is going to take us through, uh, it's going to take us to California, it's going to bring us back to Connecticut, uh, around the state, and uh, hopefully by the end we'll be clear uh, so how, this, how this came to be. So uh, my very brief story is uh, I w uh, when I was an uh, uh, internal medicine resident, uh, my I really got very comfortable uh, with, uh, with internal medicine. I felt pretty confident going out into primary care, and I was comfortable having an ongoing dialogue and access to my colleagues in various specialties. The nephrologist who I bumped shoulder, rubbed shoulders with, the cardiologist who taught, uh, who, uh, who, who I knew well, and I was comfortable being able to get answers to my questions. And the minute I started practicing primary care in New Britain, very underserved population, uh, I had a panel of uh, upwards of uh, 1,500 patients, uh, mostly Spanish-speaking, Medicaid, uninsured, uh, and I started to get emails like this. This is one of probably dozens that, that I would get on a fairly regular basis. And this is a real email. We did block out the names of the doctors 
and the health systems. I'm not sure why, but uh, here's the latest and greatest news. Dr. So-and-so of orthopedics states that all orthopedic referrals from the Shoreline area are to be scheduled locally. If no local orthopedics, then they are to be referred to Yukon Health Center. Now, this actually is an email uh, from our practice in New London where I was working as well. Uh, the next one was Dr. So-and-so of dermatology states that he will only see patients that live in the following areas, New London, Groton, Mystic, Gale, Sferi, and Ledyard. Nowhere else. This patient happened to come from another shoreline town, Clinton. Uh, for me, this is my referral coordinator. This means that I have nowhere to send my managed health care patients when they need to see an orthopedic unless they have Medicare as their primary coverage. Then such and such orthopedics will see them. And that was Yale orthopedics, I'll tell you. Uh, as for the dermatology patients that live in Waterford, Nowhere to go at this time. Can my job get any harder to do? Question mark, question mark, question mark. And then uh, on, on a uh, similar note, uh, just an FYI, such and such ophthalmology is not currently taking any new Husky patients. So what I came to learn and what, what should be obvious is that these type of emails, th this is a day-to-day -day occurrence for anybody working in the safety net. Uh, and it's one of the most frustrating things that you face as a primary care provider, uh, pediatric or adult medicine. Uh, and what we've come to know is that these types of emails speak to a deeper problem in the health system that has really significant negative consequences for the health of our patients uh, and for the health of our communities. Uh, because one in four visits to a primary care provider results in a referral to a specialist. Uh, and some of the research that we've done at the Weizmann Institute suggests that less than half of those referrals actually ever get seen. Uh, and there's a whole series of cascading events, all of them bad, uh, that occur when this, when this occurs. Uh, major imbalances, as I'm describing, have uh, significant lead to wait times. Wait times lead to higher no-shows. Uh, when symptoms persist while a patient is waiting, they don't sit around and wait. They go to the emergency room. Uh, many times, this lack of access leads to greater morbidity and mortality, and it's considered to be one of the leading, uh, or one of the contributing factors to ethnic and racial health care disparities. So this is Dr. Dudley. Hopefully many of you know him. He's one of our pediatricians. He works in New Britain. Uh, he's actually the guy who hired me uh, for my first job. He was two years my senior. Uh, and he sees a lot of patients. And he's very smart. Uh, he knows a lot about pediatric primary care. Uh, however, uh, he doesn't know everything. And since medical knowledge doubles every 18 months, invariably when he sees a patient, he will sometimes have a question and not be certain what to do. Uh, think about not only Dr. Dudley, but some of our newer graduates coming out into practice for the first time, some of our nurse practitioners seeing patients. Uh, invariably, we have questions, and we seek knowledge from people who have access to those answers. Uh, and what I've described and what I'm showing in this picture is the circuitous path that we often need to go down to try to get an answer to that question. And so if you think, many, many times when a primary care provider is seeing a patient, it's some additional knowledge or an answer to a question that they're seeking. And currently, there's only one way to obtain that knowledge, to follow this circuitous path, calling up your friends, asking for favors, trying to get them in, waiting a lot of time, hoping the patient will take three bus lines and take a day off and get daycare, and the car won't break down and they'll make it to the specialist. All of the things that happen and all of the things that intervene to make this pathway broken at times, hopefully, if they happen, the knowledge that I seek will be transmitted back to me in the form of a fax from one of our specialists, which tells me the answer to the piece of information that I was seeking. So this, I'm, I'm going to bet nobody knows who this is. There's no reason that you would necessarily know, but I'll tell you, this is the person who uh, produced this. This is the Gutenberg Bible, and that was Johannes Gutenberg. Uh, and the reason I put this up is if you think in, in the Middle Ages, prior to the invention of the printing press, 
there, there was really no access to knowledge. People out in the community, in their medieval towns and cities, if they wanted knowledge, had to go to a cloister, to a monk. It was really the church that maintained access to the limited fund of knowledge, uh, and the only people who had any degree of access to the Bible and to any other printings. And so knowledge was cloistered in a cloister. Uh, kind of in a similar way to the specialty knowledge that Dr. Dudley was seeking is in many times cloistered in the mines and in the academic medical centers and in the places where specialists reside, which often is not in the underserved communities where we practice, and it's certainly not in many of the rural locations where some of my colleagues uh, working in other community health centers practice. So, but the Gutenberg Bible changed all of that, and suddenly knowledge could be transmitted in a new and different way. And as many of you know, this was the, one of the principal inventions that led to the Enlightenment, as suddenly knowledge became uh, available uh, to all in different forms. So we've coined a phrase called moving knowledge, not patience. And we call this the knowledge pyramid. And the, this is the conceptual model behind what I'm going to present today. And I'm going to talk exclusively about the bottom part of that. If you think about Dr. Dudley and his question, this model posits that many times the answer to his question could be obtained by something called an e-consult. Sometimes that might be, not be enough. You might actually need to have a discussion or to talk to a multidisciplinary team of experts in a particularly complex condition. Uh, Project ECHO, for those of you familiar with that, is just that type of an intervention. Uh, telehealth, as we traditionally think of it, where a provider uh, specialist and the patient talk by, by Skype or by, by uh, something along those lines uh, is another way to get that information, although much more resource intense. And then the face-to-face -face visit, which we exclusively rely on nowadays, is at the top. Our hope is that we can make that part on the top much, much less common uh, and that we can cull out all of those other knowledge exchange opportunities that don't require the face-to-face -face visit so that when the patient does need a face-to-face, -face, we can focus the resources that we have to get them there uh, and make sure that the encounter is optimized. So let me show you another way. This is a, I, I use a dermatology example just because, I mean, I like the picture and because uh, it is, uh, I think it, it's, it's easy to understand what this concept is all about. So this is a real e-consult. Uh, again, from a visit in New London. This was a three-month-old with a severe scalp rash uh, and a total body rash. And uh, one of our most experienced family practice providers in New London uh, was caring for this patient and administered an initial treatment without effect. And so the mother came back with a very unhappy baby. Uh, and at that time, there was a nine-month wait for the nearest dermatology office to get this baby in with Husky. Uh, and that appointment would have been in Farmington, which those of you who know Connecticut geography well know that's about an hour, hour and a half drive up from New London to get the patient in. So nine months and an hour and a half drive for an underserved patient in New London. Uh, but instead, uh, we sent those pictures, the information from the electronic health record, and literally one day later got this response back from Dr. June Liu, dermatologist at UConn. Uh, and I won't read through this, but what you see is a detailed, well, it was a diagnosis, uh, and a detailed treatment plan telling the provider exactly what to do. Uh, the provider called the patient, uh, called the pharmacy, <coughs> made these prescriptions, saw the baby back, uh, and was completely cured uh, in under two weeks. So we heard about this idea of e-consults actually as far back as 2008 and thought it sounded like a good idea. Uh, it was being done in California, it was being done elsewhere, but Connecticut is the land of steady habits, uh, not often the land of exciting, innovative, uh, you know, jump, jump first in, in new ideas. So uh, we thought that it would be a really interesting idea to test this in a rigorous uh, academic manner and actually do, uh, do a clinical trial so that we could prove, uh, or at least uh, understand better, what the implications of such a model might be. So our research question was, what is the impact, first, of, of, of cardiology e-consults? 
uh, on access, efficiency, and clinical outcomes. And so I want to take a little uh, deviation now into uh, some health services research. So this is the clinical trial. Uh, that we performed and our hope was that in so doing we could certainly test whether or not such a model could work in Connecticut, uh, what its implications might be on the patient, on the, on the specialty, on access, uh, and ultimately on cost as well. And so we collaborated. The reason we chose cardiology, it's, it's not an elegant research reason, the reason we chose cardiology is because the Yukon cardiologists were excited about this and were the first to volunteer uh, to do. We could have done many, many different specialties, but we wanted to focus on one. Uh, and so Bruce Liang, who's now the dean, uh, was chief of cardiology at the time, and uh, he and Chris Pickett, the electrophysiologist and uh, cardiologist at UConn, uh, signed on and we set up a clinical trial. We got funding from the Connecticut Health Foundation, uh, and we did a trial. Uh, and what we drew on was the experience of emerging e-consult models elsewhere. Places where primary care providers and specialists were linking with a HIPAA-compliant interface and exchanging questions and answers back and forth, uh, in most cases with, it with, uh, with clinical information from labs, clinical information from the chart, uh, pictures like I showed you in the, the dermatology example. Uh, we mostly borrowed from San Francisco General, uh, where all medical specialties for, uh, were exchanging information electronically with all primary care providers in the FQHCs, the, the community health centers in the city. Uh, in uh, eConsult LA was a similar model across LA County. Kaiser had done some experimentation with this. The uh, health system in Ontario has implemented a province-wide eConsult system, and Mayo has started as well. So these were examples. Uh, each of them is slightly different, and we got to know their models very different, very, very carefully uh, and studied them. Uh, but we set up something a little bit different, and part of the reason is because of the nature of my practice, a community health center. Uh, for those of you who don't know, CHC is a statewide community health center, federally qualified health center, and we have practices in uh, 13 cities and towns across the state. So uh, if you think about that, you know, we have in Stanford, we have Stanford Hospital where many of our patients go. Uh, in the New Britain area, they're going to New Britain General or to Connecticut Children's. Uh, in New London, they're going largely to L&M Hospital. So we have a lot of different hospitals. And we the first thought was, well, why don't we connect our primary care providers with their local specialists? But you can think about how complicated that would get. And so we decided, and which is actually how many, how most of these work, is that the local specialists are linked electronically with the primary care provider. We decided to test whether we could create what I like to describe as a virtual e-consult specialty network in the cloud, uh, which essentially means that the specialists are uh, located, you know, wherever they happen to be located, but they may not be proximate to where the uh, primary care provider is, and they may not necessarily be the specialist who would see the patient face-to-face -face should they require a face-to-face, -face. and that's an important point that I'll talk about a little bit later. This is the study. It was published Last year in the uh, Annals of Family Medicine, uh, describing an electronic consultation system to improve primary care specialty care interface for cardiology. Uh, as I said, the target population was primary care providers, and the unit of study was the provider. That's also an important point that I'll spend a little time talking about. We did a prospective randomized controlled, cluster randomized controlled intervention trial with blocked randomization for a year, which basically means we invited every single primary care provider at the community health center in any of our sites across the state to take part in the study, and almost all of them volunteered to do so and signed informed consent, uh, and then we randomized them. And when we randomized them, uh, the, uh, the intervention was basically this. The little button on this is the, this is eClinical Works, this is our EHR. Um, this is when, you, when you're seeing your patient and you're doing your treatment plan and you come to the section on consults. Uh, the people who were randomized to the intervention had that button on the lower right turned on. The people that were in the control group didn't. Uh, and all that meant is that they could, if they so chose, send their cardiology consult electronically rather than in person. 
And we, we developed a protocol that described when they should do that and when they shouldn't. And essentially the protocol said if it's considered to be urgent or if you're sending someone to a cardiologist who already knows the patient, those cases should not go electronically. Uh, but all other cases should, and we strongly encouraged, to be sent as an e-consult first. And, and in most cases, that's what happened. They could attach what they wanted, so this wasn't just an email. They could attach an EKG, they could attach labs, and generally we would attach one or two progress notes, uh, lab reports, uh, if there were any interesting radiology uh, results, we didn't send the images themselves. Uh, and for orthopedics, we've started doing that, at least for x-rays, but for, for cardiology, we did not. Uh, and then on the other end, the cardiologist would get this. They would get a, either a text or an email saying you have a new consult from Community Health Center. They would log on to a website, in most cases on an iPad. Uh, our first consult for the system was done on an iPad under the Eiffel Tower because the cardiologist was on vacation in Paris, but he wanted to be the first one to do it. So he had his iPad, he took a picture of himself sitting under the Eiffel Tower typing his e-consult. Uh, and basically they would log on and they would see the EKG, they would see whatever attachments we sent, and they would read the consult question that the primary care provider submitted and they would send a response. A couple of uh, research details. Uh, these are the patient demographic characteristics. So we studied every single patient that got referred to cardiology from both groups, regardless of whether they were sent to the e-consult or sent directly face-to-face. -face. We studied them all. Um, and so this was an intention to treat analysis, which also is important uh, in the results section, which I'll, which I'll discuss. Um, and basically what this shows is the patients in both groups, patients sent to cardiology from the control providers, patients sent to cardiology from the intervention providers were, more, were essentially the same. There were no statistically significant differences in race, insurance, uh, gender, uh, or age. And in addition, clinically, they were the same as well. The difference, there were more patients in the control than the intervention, and that was uh, actually just randomly, we had uh, a couple of providers uh, who left CHC uh, who were in the intervention group, and so we ended up with fewer consults. But those that remained were matched. Uh, they had similar rates of smoking, similar rates, uh, similar BMIs, similar cholesterol. Their Framingham risk scores were the same. So we had a matched cohort of patients, some with access to e-consults and the others not. And I am not in any way going to describe this other than to say this is important simply because what it shows is the control group sent patients to cardiology face-to-face. -face. And a, a variety of things happened. They were seen, they weren't seen, or we lost track. And in most cases, we know about 80% of the time they were seen. 20% of the time they weren't seen. Either they no-showed or we couldn't get an appointment. In the intervention group, there were two paths. Because remember, they, this was a pragmatic trial. So we couldn't force the primary care providers to send an e-consult. We could offer them the opportunity to do so. And on the left-hand side, in most cases, they did. And when they sent them as an e-consult, uh, either a face-to-face -face was or was not recommended. But they also could send patients the traditional way and say, I'm not doing this e-consult thing. I'm sending them face-to-face -face for the reasons that I laid out. And again, in those cases, either they showed or they didn't show. And the data shows that about 80% of the time they, sh they showed and 20% of the time they didn't. Uh, we studied to make sure nothing bad happened. So uh, the first thing that people want to know when they hear e-consults for cardiology is, you know, how many heart attacks did they have? Did you miss things? Did people end up in the cath lab? Those sorts of things. Uh, these results show that there was not a single negative outcome in the group that got the e-consult. And in fact, the only statistically significant finding was here. The group that got the e-consult was less likely to end up in the emergency room than the groups that got uh, the face-to-face -face consult. We showed a statistically significant reduction in ER utilization in that group that got the e-consult. But this was the punchline. 
69% of the e-consults came back with a recommendation uh, that gave treatment advice and didn't require a face-to-face -face visit. So of those consults that are primary care providers, and this is everybody from nurse practitioners fresh out of training to Dr. Dudley and, and, and people like that, uh, that 69% uh, of the time their question could be answered electronically, which was far more than we ever expected. So we asked Medicaid for claims data. Uh, to really make the case. Uh, after we'd shown that this seems to work, it seems to be safe, uh, nobody's dying, nobody's getting cathed, the, the, there may actually be some potential to save money. Uh, and so Medicaid gave us a full claims data report for all patients in the study in both arms. Uh, and all of this uh, gibberish uh, from the health economics perspective shows two statistically significant findings, both unadjusted and adjusted, and I'm not gonna talk about how we adjusted because it was complicated. Health claims data is often skewed by high utilizers and high cost care. Uh, we both adjusted and didn't adjust, but in both cases saw a statistically significant lower cost in the group that got in the e-consult intention to treat arm. All of those patients on the right side of that consort diagram, uh, which equated to $486 per patient less cost, total cost of care uh, to Medicaid for uh, the patients that were in, in the uh, e-consult arm. Uh, so we brought this to Medicaid. And we said, look, we've improved access. Patients are getting in within you know, rapidly. They're getting answers to their questions sooner. We're saving money. This is a good thing. Uh, and if I asked, what do, you, what do you think Medicaid said? You might say, well, sounds interesting, but we don't have any money to do anything. That's usually what happens. But actually, uh, Medicaid said the opposite. Uh, Dr. Rob Zavosky, a pediatrician, who I hope many of you know, uh, he's the medical director for Medicaid, said, Eureka, this is great. This is just what we need. You showed cost savings within six months. We need to save money. I haven't seen many things that can save money in such a rapid time that also improve patient outcomes. This is great. Uh, he took it all the way to uh, um, OPM and actually got something called the state plan amendment passed in the state, which authorized for the first time, the only state in the country actually authorized reimbursement to FQHCs for doing e-consults. Uh, and so Connecticut became the first state in the country to do something innovative and to actually fund something like this. So, uh, and this is what they were reacting to. This is what those cost curves look. So this is um, cardiac tests and procedures. We dug into the data a little bit more. And basically what this shows is up until the day of the consult, the costs for the two groups were the same. So you see the, uh, the triangle is the uh, control group. The circle is the intervention group. On the day of the consult, which you see the line right in the middle, suddenly the number of uh, tests and procedures diverged. Patients who saw the cardiologist had more tests and procedures than patients who didn't. And these were matched patients with similar risk and similar conditions. And the cost diverged as well. So that $500, $486 savings that I saw, uh, the two groups were equivalent, nothing statistically significantly different right up until the day of the consult, and then suddenly cost got more expensive when they got to the specialty uh, office uh, and gradually came back down to, no uh, to normal again. So based on all this information, based on the new law, uh, and uh, we, we sat back and said, all right, what have we learned from this? There's a couple of really key points uh, that have informed what we've uh, subsequently done. Uh, you know, the first was that we really, we needed to embed this in the workflow. Other e-consult systems like Kaiser and other ones that we reviewed kind of had an outside website that the primary care provider could go and log on and type the consult and get an answer back. Uh, but it required extra steps. And I have something that I call uh, in quality improvement the rule of clicks. And the rule of clicks is the success of your intervention is inversely related to the number of extra clicks you require the primary care provider to make. 
Uh, and so we wanted to set this up with the rule of clicks firmly in mind, not requiring extra clicks for the primary care provider. Uh, and so what we did was we embedded this in the workflow. Primary care providers sent the consult the same way they always did. Uh, the only difference was instead of all the information getting faxed to the, to the outpatient office in the cardiologist's office, it got sent electronically. And so their workflow was not changed at all. Uh, and the only difference was two days later they would get a PDF that looked just like a consult note that they would have gotten from the specialist, but in this case it had come electronically. And 69% of the time it gave them a good treatment plan and some advice. Uh, the other times it said I would suggest a face-to-face -face visit, in which case we immediately activated the face-to-face -face squiggly line thing that I was describing before. Uh, so you know, ease of use on both ends was important. We made it so easy for the specialists. They could log on under the Eiffel Tower on an iPad and do these e-consults. And they reported back that it took on average about six minutes to do an e-consult, sometimes ten. So they would, do, they would batch these, do them in the evenings, do them after work, whatever, whatever and, and crank through uh, the e-consults. Uh, in most cases after hours. Uh, Dr. Liu does them in between patients uh, and dermatology, but uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, we learned the payment model obviously is necessary for sustainability. The Connecticut Health Foundation grant was, was generous and helped us to get this off the ground, but it was the state plan amendment that Medicaid passed that allowed this to continue. We also found that it really didn't matter that the reviewing specialist wasn't in the local town where the primary care provider uh, was was uh, submitting the consult. Although uh, you know it's nice to establish a relationship with your local with your local specialist. The specialists, the virtual specialists, got to know the primary care providers and established a virtual relationship, more like a Facebook friend or something. And so, uh, in actually, in, in in some ways, that was felt to be positive. In fact, when we present this to insurance companies, they like the fact that there is a unincented uh, uh, person who's uh, who's reviewing these consults and has no potential hidden interest to say send them or don't send them, but really it's just giving their own uh, unvarnished opinion about what they think should happen. Uh, and so, you know, our last conclusion, e-consults can work in an open, non-integrated system over a large geographic range. So based on these findings, we said, all right, Eureka, we've got something good. Uh, we now have a payment mechanism. Let's scale this up to other specialties. And we created an entity called Community E-Consult Network, uh, which basically was just growing and ex expanding on what I've already described. Uh, a system where a referral coordinator would take incoming referrals from community health center uh, and instead of sending them by fax to the local um, cardiology office or a local specialty office, we'd send them virtually to a reviewer. Uh, and we added specialties and we added sites. And uh, because as we started doing this, some of our colleagues in the FQHC world, other community health centers that were also struggling with the same access issue said, why can't we do this? And we said, well, since we've shown that a Stanford primary care provider can send an e-consult to a UConn specialist, why can't a primary care provider in Washington State do the same thing? What's the difference? Or why can't a provider in Maine do this? And so uh, we, we actually got another grant from an uh, uh, entity called the Cox Charitable Trust in Boston to expand in New England, uh, tested it in Maine, and then gradually, Thundermist is in Rhode Island. I'll show you, I have a chart, actually gradually added practices, uh, and we're now doing this in eight states. These are all FQHCs. Uh, there's one prison health population, uh, health system, and there's one Indian health uh, service practice, but all of them struggling with that same squiggly line and desperate need for specialists. Uh, and our network of specialists now that we've grown uh, is providing access to those specialties. Uh, and the only issue that different states raises is different states have different laws about this. This is a curbside consult, and it's considered the, the specialist is not considered to be establishing a treatment relationship with the patient because they're really interacting with the primary care provider who retains sole 
uh, decision-making power in Seoul sort of implementing the, the plan. And so from a malpractice perspective and from a state licensing perspective, many states do not require uh, and allow for a specialist anywhere in Alaska, wherever they are, to answer e-consults across state lines. Some states do, some states don't. So we actually had to hire a legal team to review every single state that we're working in to determine what their specific laws were about this type of thing called e-consult. Uh, and so in Rhode Island, for some reason, they require in-state licensure. So we've licensed some providers uh, working in Rhode Island, and they're part of our network now. Uh, and we've gradually grown to all of these specialties, and we're now providing e-consults across Connecticut and in all of those locations uh, in, uh, in these specialties. And we have really interesting run data and how this has worked. We started with cardiology and got a lot of data about that, but let me show you a little bit about how it's, what it's meant for Community Health Center. Uh, this is uh, updated run data that I just got uh, about, about two weeks ago, showing you across our entire state, we have about 140,000 patients at CHC uh, that uh, come to see us on a regular basis, uh, including 10,000 in Hartford at, uh, uh, at Children's. And you, and you can see the percentage that we're doing virtually is, is really pretty astounding, I think. Uh, even in things like orthopedics and GI, which are heavily, obviously, procedure-driven, most of our GI referrals are for screening colonoscopies or things like that, but 18% of our orthopedic referrals are now done virtually, 12% of GI, but upwards of 50% in uh, things like ne nephrology uh, and uh, endocrinology are being done now uh, virtually. Uh, and we have a claims data analysis and an outcomes analysis ongoing now with each of these. And I have a UConn uh, student who's just finished evaluating the first year experience with dermatology. And the most amazing thing that she's found is that the, the 1,200 patients who got a dermatology referral from Community Health Center prior to doing this, 10% ever got seen. 90% of the derm referrals that we sent out to be seen never got seen. Uh, either they no-showed, they never could get an appointment, uh, or we give up. Uh, and the uh, after doing this, after e-consult, 70% of the referrals we sent out uh, actually got a treatment plan uh, implemented. And we, we dug into that a little bit more and looked, well, what about the cancer cases? What about the ones where the diagnosis was ruled out cancer? Uh, and we found that there were 29 of them, uh, and Dr. Liu was able to get them in, get them biopsied, and we identified 10 confirmed cases of, of, uh, of skin cancer through the e-consult system, and none in the, uh, in the, in the non-e-consult group. And we're doing a similar analysis in endocrinology, particularly looking at outcomes for thyroid abnormalities and type 2 diabetes, because those are the two most common uh, e-consult referrals. Uh, and so the most exciting thing for me is what I've just described, it's not our own. We've done it differently. We've set it up to be more geographically dispersed and to really zero in on, on rural and, uh, and uh, underserved populations across Connecticut and beyond. Um, but we have excluded the pediatricians from this, as have other systems. Pediatric e-consult has not really been done in, in any kind of a volume. And yet, Dr. Dudley, taking it back to the beginning, tells me that he has a terrible time when he needs to get access to a developmental pediatrician, uh, when he needs to have a complex asthmatic seen by a pulmonologist, or when he has um, uh, something unusual for an endocrinologist to see. And so they have been clamoring and yelling at me, you're the chief quality officer, why can't we use this system as well? So. Uh, that is where our story sort of comes full circle to somebody that I met 15 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, Karen Rubin, who came to New Britain when I was a full-time primary care provider and gave this beautiful presentation about something called CLASP. Uh, this was before any of this had happened or we'd even thought about these things. And I, I, kinda, I realized, like, literally just about a year ago, she was talking about this then. 
She was saying the same sorts of things. You primary care guys need help. There's an enormous amount of things that we can teach you and we can support you that you can do in primary care. We just need to set up the system to help you to do that. So as we started thinking, how can we make this type of technology and this type of process accessible to pediatrics and keep more patients in primary care, but make sure that those that need specialty medicine can get in, uh, the notion of going back to Karen and, and, and relearning what she told us 15 years ago, which we, I don't know, just didn't listen to her, I'm not sure what we did, but, uh, and think about well, CLASP, they really have, uh, CLASP and e-consults have an enormous amount in common, and so I'm not gonna tell the CLASP story because that's your job, uh, but suffice it to say that we have uh, been working together for the last three months now, uh, or more, uh, thinking about how these two ideas, e-consults and CLASP, might be merged to address the same common problem of how can we help patients that need access to specialties. So Karen, it's been an absolute pleasure reacquainting myself with you and, and with the CLASP model, and I'll let you describe how it's all gonna fit together. Thank you. Okay, so CLASP, let me introduce you to CLASP, which is an acronym standing for Connecticut Children's Leaders in Advanced Solutions in Pediatrics. And CLASP seeks to promote novel and feasible solutions to address challenges in pediatric healthcare, which includes co-management between primary care providers and subspecialists. Once the proof of concept was established to, through two funded studies through the Child Health Development Institute, we applied for and were, was awarded a United States federal registration certificate for the Mars, mark and logo class. And the logo, as you can see, is two circles, primary care and subspecialists, working as a virtual care team taking care of patients. So our model expands the capacity of primary care providers to address targeted high volume conditions, common problems, often deferred to subspecialists through the co-development, and by that I mean we co-create the uh, subspecialist and the primary care providers together, co-create protocols that are based on the best available evidence and expert consensus. At the same time, CLASP preserves the capacity of subspecialists for problems that warrant their level of care and to provide more timely access for those patients. The guidance provided is real-time, near the point of care. We can, uh, you can access the tools through links to our provider portion of our Connecticut Children's website. Through Some of you have printed out the tools and keep them in folders in your office. And coming soon is a clasp-loaded, handheld tablet for you to use. The guidelines clearly define under which circumstances to refer and provides tools for the most appropriate evaluation and effective treatment for each condition. Neurology, uh, headaches actually uh, representing 30%, represents 30% of total referrals to neurologists, to neurology, and is, a and is clearly a targeted class condition. Uh, Access to neurology is a challenge nationwide and at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. In fact, I just got a call last week from a pediatric resident at Bay State who is asking for our support for her, resident, uh, her residency uh, academic project, and she wants to use our class referral tools uh, uh, to, uh, 
to improve headache management within primary care. And her inspiration from this project was derived from the fact that currently there is a single neurologist at Bay State. So for those of you not familiar with the format for our referral guideline, which is one type of CLASP or co-management tool, the chief components, this is familiar to those of you in the audience who have accessed and who are early CLASP adopter, adopters, it starts with an introduction section, which just provides a brief overview of the health concern or the condition, plus a link to one or more uh, late references. The next section is the initial evaluation and management, which is aimed also at uh, avoiding any inappropriate or unnecessary diagnostic testing. The third section is when to refer, um, and that's the specific circumstances under which a uh, referral can be safely deferred, um, and those which should be re routinely referred, and then those which have red flags for urgent referrals, which most of the pediatricians recognize anyway. The next section is how to refer, and this uh, ensures that the appropriate pre-consult information is forwarded prior to the visit to make those who require a face-to-face -face visit more productive. And then the last section is what to expect from Connecticut from a visit at Connecticut Children's, and this is for primary care to inform their patients and families who, real, who, are, who have a face-to-face -face visit scheduled. In addition, depending on the condition, there are diagnostic algorithms that are included, medication dose sheets, and also uh, tips and guides for the families. So for example, our headache referral guideline contains a medication dosing sheet for the uh, primary care provider, a headache diary to track uh, the level of improvement in response to initial management for the family, and also a sheet for the family on tips for managing the contributing behavioral uh, factors contributing to the headache. Okay. I'd now like to show you just one data slide. Um, uh, many of you in the audience know that we developed a proactive dissemination process in two of our subspecialty areas, neurology and endocrinology. And this, um, this data slide, uh, so that we're able to, through the system, track the outcomes of the referral. And in this system, we steer, when a patient is referred, we steer back the referral guideline for those patients who do, do not meet referral criteria. And again, this isn't a mandate, but we offer the referring provider to try the, to uh, implement the class recommendations prior to uh, se uh, sending the referral. So that this is a typical run chart over the past year. We launched this in uh, this proactive process in about a year ago in neurology. And the year prior, neurology was averaging 70 referrals a month for headaches. So that was our starting point at total, re total referrals. So this is the, um, the, the blue line is the number, is the total number of referrals, and the red line is the number referred. And what could be noticed that's very clear is that over the year, the trend line, uh, we didn't get it in our updated copy, but the trend line goes something like this so that there was a significant uptake, uh, the uptake of the CLASP tool by the referring providers, there, which suggests that their confidence with 
doing initial management increased throughout the year so that the number of cases referred, there was a little uptake uh, in September after school was out, but now we'll see how this continues. And the margin between those um, uh, referred and deferred, which was initially wide because the op they, they were referring back, they weren't taking the option of co-management, and now that margin has really narrowed. So if we extrapolate this data to the number of slots opened up, over 700 slots were opened up in neurology, which is a significant proportion of total referrals. And this is uh, available new patient slots for patients with refractory headaches and other patients referred to neurology. Furthermore, in terms of the outcome, we, we were notified the referring, for those patients that were referred, we notified the pediatricians four months after to find out the outcome. And of those, very few were referred elsewhere, but most significantly, 89% of those patients in which the primary care implemented initial management improved, their headaches improved, and they did not need referral. Similar outcomes occurred in endocrinology, and we have a lot of years of data on that. So this is just an example of our current class portfolio. Um, this is not our latest copy. We got the wrong version here, but we had here in this box all the CLASP tools that will be available in our initial e-consult uh, pilot with CHCI, which is about 12 tools, and we're working hard to even fill up uh, the portfolio in those areas. So we have currently about 42 uh, referral guidelines. We're working on another module, referral back plans for patients who are ready to graduate back to primary care. And then we have our initial full, six full co-management plans. Okay, oh yeah, we did have the e-consult group right here. Okay, so as Darren alluded, uh, through some networking through, C, through OCCH, we met again, and it was about 10 years ago when we first met, and we realized again we're natural partners. Um, both strategies, the e-consult and the CLASP, or bring mutually beneficial strategies to help tackle issue of limited access and poor communication at the primary and subspecialty care delivery interface. Their complementarity presents us with a unique opportunity to combine our work to develop and evaluate an innovative referral process that uses technology to scale up adoption of CLASP. And they increase our value proposition to patients and families, it re, uh, to primary and subspecialty care providers, and to payers. So th this type of innovation is clearly a win-win situation. So this, this slide is, uh, shows where CLASPs uh, sit in relation to the e-consult platform. So for conditions when a CHC provider is considering referring a patient for which a CLASP tool exists, the, uh, they would consider first the information. It would be pushed to them. The CLASP tool would be pushed, and the, they would consider that information before uh, requesting an e-consult. Uh, and then direct for conditions in which a CLASP tool doesn't exist, they would then have that option to go directly to an e-consult. And as uh, Darren mentioned, because we're, this system is going to be outside our geographic area, so if 
e-consults are received by subspecialists by PCPs who are not CLASP enabled or are not aware of CLASP. And if it's, there is a CLASP tool available for their response, they can incorporate the CLASP tool in their response back to that primary care provider. So it's the same pyramid. This is a, a reverse pyramid of Darren's, but if you could see, here's the flow of patients and the, one, the number of patients that, uh, that ends up having a face-to-face -face visit is significantly reduced and we uh, and the impact of that um, is uh, greater t more timeliness to care greater health outcomes at lower costs so the implications for payment and policy reform which were alluded to previously class band e-consults arms primary care with the technology technology and tools to contribute to population health to improve quality and access for patients, and to bring efficiency to the healthcare system. In our current payment system, the subspecialists who lend their expertise and guidance, and the primary care clinicians who expand their scope of practice to manage more conditions traditionally referred to subspecialists, do not experience any cost savings in doing so, any cost benefit in doing so. Future payment models, which are currently being planned, um, implemented, and evaluated, will reward healthcare entities for seeking to shift the locus of care to the right provider in the right setting at the right time, which will greatly shift the bend the cost curve. And models such as ours has the capacity to be implemented as Darren's e-consult uh, system already has across multi multiple community child health systems, which will multiply the potential for optimal outcomes at the lowest possible cost. So together, let's celebrate that pediatrics is in Connecticut is leading the change uh, uh, towards population health. Together we are making headway to practice at the top of our scope, to improve communication interface between primary and subspecialty care, to reduce the emotional and financial burden for our patients and families, and to improve timely access to care for our patients. And I just want to give a special thanks to OCCH, to uh, Paul, to Lisa Honingfeld, to Erin Cornell, to Eminent Gorganis, uh, to uh, Scott Orsi uh, and Jesse Shandner. Uh, I want to thank Darren from the CHCI Institute for our budding partnership. Children's Medical Group is Felicia and our team here. I don't see them in the audience, but I wanted them to stand up because they participated in our next step, six step study on the co-management of concussion, which was published in Clinical Pediatrics in January of 2015 all our primary care co-authors and our reviewers, all our CLASP champions and, early, and primary care early adopters, all the CCSG faculty content experts and our designated e-consult providers, the endocrine and neurology staff for proactively steering the guidelines at the time of referral, and Michelle Kribikis, our program and data coordinator. Thank you.